Welcome back, everybody, to the ARC Party. This is the fifth of sixth Lit Reactor Archive episodes. In this episode, I'm joined by Taylor Houston and John Gingrich, and uh, co-hosting with me is Josh Chaplinski. And you get just a little over an hour of our discussion about grammar. Um, these two have written articles for Lit Reactor about grammar in the past. We talk about what matters, what doesn't, and uh, the impact of talking about grammar and um, and people getting salty about it. So uh, it's a fun conversation. And uh, once again, I'm just doing this so that the episodes of Unprintable, the Lit Reactor podcast that I did, um, have a home once uh, the website shuts down. So here is our grammar episode, and I hope you enjoy it. All right. Welcome, everyone listening to Unprintable. This is the Lit Reactor podcast, and I'm the host, Rob Olson. This is the grammar episode. So in our previous episode... Lit Reactor's 10th anniversary celebration episode, we discovered that grammar articles, for some reason, were very popular and got big reactions from people. And so we decided, why don't we pull together some of the grammar experts from the website and talk about grammar and what makes it such a compelling topic. This episode pulls together two separate conversations. So one conversation I was able to track down and uh, talk to John Gingrich, the infamous author of the most popular article on Lit Reactor of all time. We chatted a little bit about the infamy of his article, the impact it had on him, and then we also uh, took a little bit of time to talk about some of his new nitpicks or things that didn't make his original list from that article. Separately, I was able to grab Josh Chaplinski, the managing editor of Lit Reactor, as well as Taylor Houston, who is a longtime columnist and uh, teacher for Lit Reactor, uh, whose focus is primarily on grammar articles as well as teaching grammar to writers. So the episode's going to jump back and forth between those discussions. We're starting out with a discussion between Josh and Taylor and myself about grammar, and then we'll jump over to John and back and forth a little bit. All right, to kick things off, I just want to welcome onto um, this episode, the grammar episode, our two guests for today. We have the managing editor of Lit Reactor, Josh Chaplinski. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And I, I guess I could have come up with a more official title, but I'm going to go with uh, Lit Reactor's resident grammar expert, which is Taylor Houston. Thanks for joining. Hi there. Um, Taylor, uh, since we've got Josh on the episode before and, and we've heard uh, him talking about, you know, the history of Lit Reactor, we'll probably want to dive in and learn a little bit more about you for anybody who's not familiar. Um, how long have you been working with Lit Reactor and um, what... Uh, what has your main has your main contribution been uh, around grammar, or have you done their stuff as well? Um, it has mostly. Uh, so I, when I moved to Portland back in 2010, I started going around on Twitter, like following Portland writers, and I followed Chuck Palahniuk, of course, because you know that's who he is. And somewhere around, I think the summer of 2011, there was a call for people to start pitching articles for this new website called Lit Reactor that was a spinoff of. Chuck's fan page. Um, and I had just been teaching kind of a off the cuff class to people around for writing and stuff like that. Uh, and I thought, Oh, that might be interesting. I could, um, you know, do some craft articles. And so I applied for it and got that. So I started right at the beginning with lit reactor, um, back 10 years ago, which I can't even believe that. Um, at first I did really craft related stuff and then 
I kind of, I think I did one in January of 2012 that was a grammar related and it got a really kind of good review. People started commenting a lot more. I got a lot more interaction because the first ones were supposed to be interactive. Like I put like questions at the bottom, like comment at the bottom, how you, you know, format your narrative. Um, And it was just crickets. But then for some reason, the grammar thing just kind of got a lot more interaction and, um, so I thought, oh, maybe I should do more of those. And, and then I just started doing a lot more of those anyway. And I'm kind of a technical person with writing too. So it felt really natural to move that direction. And a lot of the content I've done for Lit Reactor since then has been grammar related. And then I pitched a class um, to teach for them too uh, about a year after that. And I've taught, I don't know, 20, 30 iterations of that class. It's a lot. Like I went around and counted like how many students and how many classes and I just lost count halfway through. And I was like, whatever, it's a lot. (laughs) um, And I consistently get people in there and consistently get engagement with grammar stuff. And it's amazing that people seem to hate it so much, but they really have a lot of things to say about it. So (laughs) that's how I'm, that's how I got here. That's great. Um, and I think that's going to be a topic that we talk about is like, what's the fascination with grammar? Um, because it's, it's odd, like, cause it's, it's, I think it's strong feelings on, on both kind of poles of it. But, um, Josh, I'm wondering because it came up, um, that like, there seems to be more interaction with the grammar articles or it seemed to be in like in that case. And then, you know, that led to more. And we talked about, uh, John Gingrich's article that was the most viewed article in Lit Reactor history. What's uh, from your from your perspective? Uh, any insight into what makes people care so much about this, or why it's such a what's a thing that people kind of gravitate gravitate toward? Yeah, it's it's strange. I think um, people in general um, love to complain and nitpick. And grammar is kind of this safe thing to, to you know, nitpick and uh, complain over. Um, I was watching the other night, actually, uh, on HBO, this new documentary. Uh, it's called 15 Minutes of Shame. It's the one yeah. narrated by Monica Lewinsky. Uh, the guy who directed Catfish directed it. And, uh, you know, they interview whole bunch of people but they specifically they interviewed john ronson who wrote so you've been publicly shamed so you've been publicly shamed yeah yeah and uh so you know watching that actually and you know knowing this episode was coming up it made me think a lot about the grammar thing because one of the uh facts i learned watching that documentary was that the way the twitter and facebook algorithm works it uh, it recognizes key words that express disgust. So if you write something and you and you type, this is outrageous, this is horrible, you know, and you know words like that, the the algorithm picks up on that and knows these are words that other people search for and react to, and there's more inter more interaction with stuff that makes people angry than with stuff that people are happy about. And I think, so part of it falls into that. And like I said, grammar to me, it's an easy thing for people to get 
upset over yet it's it's not super serious but it could be treated like it's super serious and it's it's something i don't know the, the lay person could claim no offense to taylor could claim to be an expert in although plenty of people aren't i don't know it's just it gets people riled up do you see that taylor when you're so in the reactions to your columns and stuff but also um in in your classes that you teach oh that's a good question like does it stay civil in the class yeah or <laughs> that's what i'm it, wondering it, you know ever come it really it? does in the classes the classes have been Usually by the time they've gotten to the class, they at least have admitted that they don't know something, which I think is where a lot of people get mad. They think they know something. Um, they heard something once in a class when they were in high school or whatever, and they just like held on to that knowledge forever. But I think the folks in the class, they've decided, you know, they've really admitted to themselves they don't know something and they can learn. So I haven't really seen much, like no one really argues with each other. Occasionally people ask me, questions about you know something that they thought they knew and is that true and stuff like that um but no it's pretty civil it's just it's like it's out in the the comment land that people really seem to um get upset i remember the first couple i think it was when my class the first class page went live there was somebody on twitter that kept like trolling me there was like a typo in the class description <laughs> and they just went on Twitter and would just like at me all these comments about how it was wrong and all this stuff. And I think at one point I just wrote back to them like, Hey, I don't know you. What did I ever do to you personally to, to, <laughs> to react like this? You know, yeah, it was narrow. We fixed it, you know, move on. And then they just stopped after that. <laughs> it was very strange. Um, but yeah, I don't get much of that. It, it was John's article. And I think um, there was a, another one, that anytime you, I think it was Rob that did one that was about nitpicks. And then I did one that was like words you're literally getting wrong. And those all kind of, because again, like you said, prescriptive, if you say this is right and this is wrong, that's when people really start to get fidgety and just like, Oh, well, I always thought it was wrong and I've been using it that way for years. So because I've been using it for that way for years, it must be right. Or I saw it once in a book used that way. So therefore you know, if it was printed somewhere, therefore it's correct. And, and all other opinions are null and void. So, um, I did, when I was in grad school, I taught like the freshman 101, like composition class. And I remember the, the mentors, like professors that helped us grad students, they said, like, there's a really strong connection of identity and self in someone's writing. So, when you're reading someone's writing, you're really connecting with who they think they are. And so judging that is where they feel personally judged. It's very hard to disconnect what you've written with who you are. And I think that there's a big piece of that in the grammar discussion where if people have written something and it's wrong, you say that's wrong. They think, Oh, I'm wrong. I'm bad. I I'm stupid, but it's really, no, this is, this is not, you know, correct. Or, you're not getting your point across the way you want to because of this, that, or the other thing. And I think that's where people take it so personally and it's not, it comes out of them. So they feel like they are the ones that are stupid. If you say something that they've written is not correct. That's interesting yeah. because I find um, a lot of 
you know, the grammar rules and stuff people argue over. Like I could understand punctuation and usage. I could understand people being so strict about those things because, I mean, technically over time, I guess some of those rules do change. But for the most, you would like to think they're set in stone, especially when you first learn them when you're younger, you're not thinking, you know, you're told this is the way it is. This is the truth. You're not thinking, oh, but this might evolve as I get older and, and different yeah. people might do it differently. So I could understand how people would be so rigid about that. But then to me, that also seems, I, I'm not sure I understand why people would have their identity invested so much in that kind of like, cold calculated usage aspect of it you know it's not like necessarily style which is a more personal thing to me it just seems like rules you should follow and it, it it's weird that people would identify so personally with a set of rules well they do think it's their their style i think that's where so I don't really even tell a lot of people that I do this grammar stuff because immediately I start getting things like on Facebook, like don't correct my grammar, Taylor, <laughs> <laughs> or, or I know I didn't write that wrong, but you know, I was just writing this I'm like it's Facebook, not, you know, <laughs> I don't care. I do typos all the time. I type things wrong all the time. It's, I'm not judging you. Um, but it, it is kind of interesting how quickly the guard goes up if they think that I'm going around judging everybody's grammar. Um, Cause I'm sure not. And I don't want people to do it me either because it's going to be bad. Um, everybody makes mistakes and you have to like go back and think about it sometimes <laughs> to get it right. Uh, I do think what, you know, you, you know, when you go to school, it's like you learn all these things, right? You learn math rules and you learn science like laws of physics and you learn all these things that they kind of say this is how it is and writing and grammar is sort of taught that way too although i'd say it's not taught that well um even or like even if you learn like a, another language so let's say you get french or spanish class in school that you kind of learn all these these rules for that too so you think okay i've got these rules uh but then you go out and you start seeing all of the you know stuff that's written you're like well that's not right you know and how come this famous author can write it like that and get published but uh it's wrong or it's not exactly right or different you know how right. come the ap is different from chicago manual style is different from you know the modern language association what is a style guide why does anybody even care if you put a comma here or you don't or these different groups have different opinions of how to use certain rules or how to format certain things and I think what I always tell my, my students in the Lit Reactor classes is that the rules are more like, they are guidelines, they're usage suggestions, there is a lot of what currently is happening in our culture right now as to, you know, like, for instance, I think in the article I just did for Lit Reactor for the tenure, they have, um, one, they've put, you know, um, non-binary genders into you know, AP articles and stuff like that. This is the thing that they added to their style guide to say, yes, we will do this. Uh, that's a cultural influence, right? To, to, a, to a rule book. That's not really rules. It's just, we've decided collectively that this is a, a good way to communicate things. And so now we're going to do it together as, you know, journalists or whatever. 
Um, so it isn't a rule like a squared plus b squared equals c squared, right? It's a stylistic usage and it changes all the time. And when you start to really look how people are using grammar to communicate with each other, it's always in flux. And so things are part of how we are communicating. That's just, it's, it's who we are, what our backgrounds are, how we talk to each other and how we want to be understood. So there is actually a lot of sort of our identity in there, but also we have to agree to kind of come to a consensus on how we how we communicate with each other. And so that's where grammar kind of crosses that divide between what I want to say and how I want to say it and how I can say it in a way that you can understand what I'm saying, right? If we're coming at it with the same kind of format, that's why there even are style guides. Yeah. So that everybody in an organization or everybody in a profession says, okay, we agree that this is how we're going to approach something that way we're not just all over the board because imagine if every writer that's a professional writer just comes to their job or to writing their books or to writing articles for the New York times. And they just go, I feel like capitalizing <laughs> all, you know, races or all I'm going to put commas every time I feel like there should be a pause here because it works for me. And then we don't have consistency. We just have, you know, that person's communication style. It's uh, it's interesting that you mentioned um, the gender or pronouns, uh, that sort of thing. Do you think, um, like, it seems now with the internet and everyone being so connected, that this change, this current change in the language, is very much spurred on by you know social and and cultural norms. Do you feel like? And I don't know how much of the history of this you might know, but do you feel like this is really the first time in history that it's been the the culture has been such a force on the ch change or the evolution of language, or has it this always been the way it's been? It's always been that way. Um, so I don't know if you guys know the grammatical rule that they say don't split an infinitive. So um, the infinitive is to, and then whatever the verb is, so to run. In English, we have two words, right? To, and then that, that verb, which is run. In other languages, the infinitive is like one whole word that's changed depending on who's being, you know, who's doing that action, who's like, he runs, they run, you know, we run, those kind of things. Um, so in English, there's been this rule that you can't split them because in other languages, you can't. We don't really, it's not really something that we have to do in English because we literally do have two words, right? And you could put something in there. Um, in, in other times when English speakers thought that they needed to align themselves more with like Latin-based languages, Romance languages. So if you go to sort of older English speakers, they often had their royalty with, or they either were French or they spoke French or they were trying to align themselves with that romance language thing, they thought we don't split them because you can't in other languages. So we're going to put them together. Another example of that is um, ending something with a preposition, right? It's totally natural in English to end a, some, a sentence with a preposition. You know, it doesn't even feel wrong, which is why people do it all the time. Um, in other languages, you can't because they're, they really are, they don't go together. And those languages would often be like a Latin based language. And in English, 
we sort of felt at a certain time, people that were writing the books and caring about these things thought, hey, we should be more, our grammar should be more like, you know, Latin or, or French or, or, you know, Italian, because we see ourselves as aligned with that sort of cultural push. Um, so that was a cultural thing that just kind of stuck in there in the back. And people now don't even really know that's where it came, comes from. It's just there. And so it still feels like this, <laughs> it feels natural to put those things in there or, or write that way or to put, uh, you know, space in between these words that you couldn't do in other languages because you can in English. English is not a Latin based language. It comes from, um, you know, Anglo-Saxon. I, I'm not a linguist. I would love to just sit around and ring read about that stuff. But like, I'm always fascinated by how what we think of as rules and norms and and you know usage rules are not. They're just this long line of of thoughts and people's ideas about how we shouldn't shouldn't use language. Now, because of internet and Twitter and all this stuff, I think we're like it's not just a bunch of elites sitting around making, having these conversations. It's all of us <laughs> where we can all get on Twitter and, and, point, yeah. d- and say what we feel about it, no matter what that means, no matter where we come from, no matter what like our background is about it. So that's why I think it feels like we're all having the same conversation now. Whereas in the past, like maybe your average layperson has no idea why a certain grammar rule is. They don't know that it's culturally influenced by people that think that we should be more Latinized in our, grammar structure for English. I mean, why would you know that? You know, if you're a farmer, (laughs) there's a bunch of, you know, educated people who decided that this is how it's going to go in their grammar books that they, you know, hand to each other at their own universities and and whatnot. So that's why I think it feels like it is, but it's definitely not. Well, well, I'm no farmer, but that's the first time I've ever heard that. And that's that's super interesting that that's where that came from. (laughs) Well, we're all farmers now. I mean, it's like we're—you could be anybody, but you can have a Twitter account, right? Mm-hmm. And people are way more literate on all levels of society than they were before. Even someone like um, Daniel Webster—he was an American. We all know of him as the, the you know, American English dictionary guy, right? He's the one that that really put that together, and he started doing that because he wanted to. Um, he thought the way that English was taught in American schools was very inconsistent. Each sort of little school had their own way. And they were, they had these really old books that had come over from England and stuff like that. And he didn't think that they were appropriate for this new colony that was kind of becoming its own thing. It wasn't an independent, you know, place yet, you know, it wasn't the United States yet. Um, But he wanted to uh, bring more consistency in those schools in, in the colonies on how they were learning language. So the first thing that he did that really actually got him notoriety at the time was create these learning books that he would give out to the schools. The dictionary came later on. Um, and from that wanting to teach writing and reading consistently through the schools that in, you know, the colonies, he thought, okay, also we need to have some more consistency on how we spell things, what our words mean and stuff like that. And he proposed tons of these like uh, spelling changes that some of them took and some of them didn't. So like color, right? If you go to um, countries that have more uh, British style English, they put that U in there, C-O-L-O-U-R. Um, he was one of the people that proposed that U is not doing anything. Let's take it out. Um, 
and that caught on. But then some other things that he proposed, like getting rid of like CH as a K sound. So spelling like the word character with a K instead of a CH. So he thought if you, because it was phonetically correct, K, but CH doesn't make sense, but it's still in there. Um, People didn't really go for that. So it was still kind of this like, (laughs) yeah, he wanted to spell mean M-E-E-N, right? That's phonetically correct. So he proposed all these phonetic spellings of things and some went, some caught on and some didn't (laughs) for whatever reason. So what this makes me think of the talking about like the cultural influence on grammar and how it's kind of always been a thing, but like with the internet um, existing and, and I'm assuming probably one of the highest rates of, of literacy, probably historically, right? Would I, would that be, we're higher, more literate now than, you know, sounds like it could be true. I mean, probably, I mean, like, especially if you jump back a couple hundred years, we're, we're doing better is what I'm saying. Um, Yeah. I'd say we are. (laughs) Would, so then my thought is um, we there's more of a level playing ground for for everybody having more of a like a, a smarter opinion on on how things should be done. So not that um, not that we should like Wikipedia grammar rules and everything, but shouldn't then people be more open to the idea that if there's a um, a consensus on public usage, it should at least be considered or um, or something like that. I don't know. Just a thought that I had off the top of my head. Well, I think it's interesting. So, like, I don't know. I follow, like, dictionary, you know, Instagrams and stuff like that. And you know, every year they say, oh, they added these 25 words to the dictionary, right? And they're all words that are really, really of the moment, usually. Things that have sort of come into our cultural, you know, vocabulary in the last year or two. Um, and that's because the dictionaries, that's exactly how they function. It is... I wouldn't say it's democratic, but it's, it's responsive, right? It's responsive to what's out there. It takes what exists and, and absorbs it. It's not prescriptive the the other way around. And grammar really is that way too, but we don't think of it that way. We think of it as pushing out, like these are the rules and then it goes out to people, but it really is responsive to the way people are communicating and writing um, way more than we realize. And so I think that if we had that realization and we, used it that way. People that do style guides and stuff like that do understand that because they are actually going, if you go in Chicago manual style, anything that they say is a way that they do it. They always provide an example. So they have gone out to real published uh, um, articles and things like that and said, okay, it's used here and here and here just the way we say. So that's why we're saying this is a good way to use it. It really is pulling from the outside in. It's not the other way around, but we don't think of it that way. Stepping away from the discussion with Josh and Taylor, here is John Gingrich and a somewhat epic story of joining Lit Reactor, writing a grammar article, having it go completely ballistic, and how it impacted his life. John, I think I want to start out our discussion with um, just reflecting on the fact that, um, first of all, you have the most viewed uh, article in the history of the 10 years of lit reactor and um we know from our discussion with josh and rob on the previous episode that there was a little controversy around that so is there anything you uh you got to say about um the overall reaction to it and then maybe an impression of how it feels to be the most viewed article on lit reactor oh god um yeah it was um <laughs> it was surreal it was weird. Um, just a bit of background. Um, 
I was with Lit Reactor from the very beginning. Uh, they they hired me in the summer of uh, 2011, uh, before the site even went live. So they got, so I don't remember the number. There was something like 500 people or something that applied for this job. And it was like me and seven other people who got the gig. And um, so they hired me to write these uh, these columns on writing craft. And so what I would do is I'd write columns on everything from dialogue to descriptions to characters to POV. And um, I ended up doing in total about three dozen articles for the site. Um, I want to say between 2011 and 2013, something like that. By the time December of 2011 runs uh, rolls around, um, I think I'd written about 10 articles for the site at that point. And uh, I was, I was kind of running out of ideas and uh, I just, kind of came up with this idea of doing an article on grammar. And um, the idea for the article came from the fact that I've, I've been an editor for a magazine now for about 16 years. Um, at that point, obviously it hadn't been that long. It, you know, it still been about, you know, seven years or six years or something at that point. But uh, because of my job, I kept seeing the same usage and grammatical errors all the time, like over and over again. And this is where I think it's really important to just like lay out a, a really clear caveat here. Like I'm not really a grammar guy. And this is something that a lot of people didn't know and something I, I wanted to make really clear from the beginning. And um, I don't think I really did that. Um, so, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, I, I edit a magazine, um, but people who specialize in grammar and usage, they're really punctilious, you know, like um, – like I, I just got the like literally today. I just got the line edits back from my publisher for for the the book I have that's coming out, and I, they're just impressively detailed. You know these edits. So grammar and usage, it's not usually my wheelhouse. Even though, yeah, I, for my day job, I am the editor of a magazine. Um, you know, it's just not something I'm interested in, and it's not something I really cared. I, I didn't have a burning desire to write about it, and so I just yeah, I came up with this idea. Well, I'll just do this article where I'll lay out some of the common usage and grammatical errors that I see over and over again at my day job. So that was the idea. And it, you know, it was the, the article wound up with the headline, something to the effect of, you know, like 20 common grammar mistakes, almost everybody makes. And my original idea, I wanted to call it 20 common grammar and usage mistakes. Almost everyone makes, cause there's a, you know, there is a, a discrete but <laughs> discernible difference between the two. So, you know, grammar is all about syntax. You know, it's like the rules that govern how sentences are formed and, and usage is different. Usage is th using the right word. And as it turns out, most of the things that I wrote in the article are about usage. Um, but it just, it didn't sound too good. And I wanted the, the title to be a little pithier. So it just got kind of cut down to 20 common grammar mistakes. And that's one of the things that people ended up picking oh, on me for. And the article was that, <laughs> I was, they, they thought I was calling usage errors or usage mistakes, grammar mistakes. So anyway, I put together this list and, um, when I, when I wrote mistakes, almost everyone makes, that's another thing that, that, you know, in a headline, it doesn't, headlines aren't very, you know, they don't have like nuance to them. But I, what I tried to make clear was that these are things that everyone does, you know, me included. Um, I mean, a lot of them can be found in like, um, a strunk and white you know, like the elements of styles, the classic uh, grammar and usage book uh, by I think W. Strunk and I think E.B. White's the other guy's name. Uh, and the the rest of the examples I got from a book called um, The Careful Writer 
which is by a guy named Theodore Bernstein. And um, he used to be the uh, managing editor, I think, uh, for the New York Times back in the 50s. And that's a, I, I don't even know if that book's in print anymore. Um, I don't even think I own a copy anymore. But that's where I got a lot of the other examples I put into this article. So I, I whittled it all down to 20 common, again, I wanted to say at the time, grammar and usage mistakes everyone makes. And I, I put together this list. And um, I mean, it just takes off. Um, it just within a day or two, it became really clear to, well, first of all, to the guys who run the site, um, you know, Josh and Dennis and, and, and Kirk, God bless his soul. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, it, it, the, it, it became clear to everybody that the thing just kind of went wild. Um, you know, Josh Chaplinski got a hold of me and it, it tells me what's going on that this um this article is just it's just circling the globe at a breathless pace and um i clicked on the article to see what he was talking about and i just see page after page after page of comments and some of it is is you know praise i guess thanks for writing this thanks for putting this together i'd always wondered about the difference between may and might um or envious and jealous or thanks for clearing up the difference between fewer and less and further and farther and, you know, stuff like that. Um, those are some of the things that I put in the article, the difference between irony and coincidence effect with an A and effect with an E pretty common stuff. And um, yeah, uh, it, it just kind of ended up railroading my life for a few weeks, actually, uh, which sounds like a weird thing to wow. say. Um, it, I, so I've been, you know, I've been writing articles for a long time and like I'll write editorials for the magazine that I edit every month. And these go online as well as in the print magazine I edit. And a lot of them are really opinionated. You know, I'll write pretty opinionated political articles and I'll get some pushback. It does happen. It was pretty crazy how an article about grammar could really incense a lot of people. Um, I, there were just people who were <laughs> pissed off and it's, it was a, it was a pretty big teachable moment for me. Actually. Um, I, I learned something then that I, I, I just kind of carried with me to this day about how the internet works. Um, it's an interesting thing that anytime that you're prescriptive about something and you write something where you basically tell people that they're doing something wrong. Um, I mean, you can expect pushback to that. Um, and you can, right. it can be, it, it can be pretty intense. Um, so yeah. Um, the, the comments just started lighting up on this article. And um, I, I, I think um, I don't want to put words in their mouths. I, I, I'm pretty sure that, that the guys at Lit Reactor were pretty happy about that because it was getting a lot of attention. <laughs> um, I wasn't so happy about the fact that people were looking me up online and finding my email and then sending me, you know, pretty much the nastiest messages you can imagine. And I was just really floored by this because um, it's an article about grammar. And I would just get, I would wake up every day and there would be, you know, a dozen or more emails in, in my, my inbox. I mean, in hindsight, it's really funny. Um, I never knew that uh, something like grammar could really get under someone's skin so much. But I really did learn then that, again, anytime that you're prescriptive about something and, and you write something where you, where you tell people that, that they're wrong or that they're making a mistake, I mean, that's just a recipe for... Um, uh, and for, for, I mean, you can expect a lot of opprobrium. Um, you can expect yeah. a lot of pushback to something like that. 
um, the pushback was just really very strange to me. Um, I, I wasn't expecting it and it just kind of, uh, yeah, it just kind of railroaded my life for a few weeks. Um, just to give you an indication or uh, just to paint a picture of how big the article was, um, I got recognized on the street for it in Manhattan. What? Um, really? Yeah, yeah. I was going into my office uh, on, on Madison Avenue and I'm going into the building and this guy behind me is coming in with me and he goes, he stops me and he's like, wait a minute. He's like, are you the guy who wrote that grammar article? I couldn't fucking believe it. I was just blown away. Um, That's totally insane. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, in midtown Manhattan, someone spots me on the street and, and asks if I'm the, the grammar guy. And this is, you know, this is, this is the, this is how this ended up snowballing into this whole other issue where I never wanted to be known as a grammar guy. You know, there are all kinds of people out there who are much better suited to talk about this stuff. I, I don't have the, the granular hold on 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 grammar and usage the way that someone who works for like a, a a major publisher would it's the other reason why you know it's the reason why I, I never really wanted to reprise the topic in another lit reactor column um much to the chagrin i suppose of uh the guys running the site it just wasn't something i wanted to um to to jump back into especially after um the really oh my god uh just the incredible amount of pushback that i got um, um, from, from writing this stuff. Some of the other responses that I got to the column were really funny because what people started doing was they started going back through my article and they tried to pick apart any word that I used to tell me if what I was doing was grammatically wrong or not, which is, it's really funny. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the emails that I got and some of the comments on this site, like, um, uh, people pointed out to how I used a colon, in, in one of the sentences, um, someone pointed out to the way that I use the word alternative. Um, the, the silliest one was a comment of it that someone put in response to the article where they, um, they pointed out that um, my, I, I use the phrase, I couldn't care less. And, you know, this idiot said that yeah. was wrong. <laughs> That's right. totally right. I mean, like, you know, I couldn't care less. I mean, that I literally could not <laughs> care less. That's what it means. But again, they'll just try to find anything that they can to show that you're not living up to the same standard as the rules that you're prescribing. And yeah, it only kind of, you know, it only kind of furthered my desire to never write anything like this again. Um, but it was a it was a really funny and weird and surreal experience. I, it's, it is a very strange sensation to have every dork in America angry at you. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It's, it's really, really weird. Um, and again, some of them said things that I think they, they had a point. Others were just like just needlessly angry. And I find myself, you know, I, I was just, I found myself becoming like really concerned about their mental state that if grammar is going to set you off this much, you know, like um, what's the next election going to do to you? Um, this is just very strange. Yeah, um, it, it was uh, it was one of those things where um, nobody saw this article taking off the way it did. I certainly didn't. And if I would have known that it would have taken off like that, I would have really taken more of a microscope to things. Um, you know, it, it it there was a teachable moment there for me in that regard as well, where 
sometimes I'll just write things and I'll just kind of phone it in. Um, you know, you're busy. I, I got two jobs basically, and I write fiction and, um, you know, I, I teach my fiction class at Gotham writers workshop and, uh, I've got a five-year-old at home and I got a wife and I like to exercise and watch movies just like everybody else. So time is really kind of at a premium and, um, there's this impulse sometimes to phone it in. And, um, yeah, you, I mean, <laughs> you never know who's going to be reading and how many people are going to be reading. If I would have known it would have taken off like this, I would have spent a little bit more time with it, but I just treated it like any other article that I wrote. There was a teachable moment there that, and I've really taken it to heart since that um, don't phone it in. Um, <laughs> take your time. <laughs> take your time if you have it. Well, it's nice that there's like some positive things that came out of it, I guess. Um, but one thing that you mentioned is that you didn't want to be known as the grammar guy or a grammar right. guy. Um, so this is kind of an opportunity to kind of distance yourself. I, I, you know, this is probably like a timeless thing that you're always going to be. Cause even when um, uh, internally talking about um, doing a grammar episode of, of this podcast, they were really pushing me to make sure we get John involved. So like there's even kind of some of that going on, you know, internally within lit reactor. Um, but what would you say, like you said, you have this, um, this novel coming out. So is, is that like, how, how would you define yourself to people as not the grammar guy? I am the, this guy, you're an editor, you're an author. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I've, uh, been publishing uh, fiction for 13 years, uh, short stories. That was what I always did. Uh, I, I was always a, a short story writer and, um, I've been a journalist for God, 20 years now. Um, I started writing, you know, for daily newspapers when I was in my uh, early twenties and, um, I became the editor of a magazine, um, in, here in New York when I was 29 and I've had that magazine ever since, uh, the magazine's called O'Dwyer's. Um, yeah, so I've been writing for a, a long time. Um, I, you know, my, my novel is coming out, uh, it's called the appetite factory. It's coming out in August, uh, through the Turner publishing company, uh, one of their imprints called key light books. Um, so yeah, um, I, I've been doing fiction for, you know, been publishing it for, for more than a dozen years, uh, in a, in a, in a, in a perfect world, an ideal world. Um, something like that would be on my epitaph, not, um, <laughs> not the 20 common <laughs> grammar mistakes almost everyone makes. Um, you know, it, you, you don't get to choose what people remember you for, right? Uh, it's just right. life. Your this is your infamy as opposed to like your, your personality or persona or whatever. Sure. And you know what? At the end of the day, I'll take it because, um, you know, after all, it is about grammar for fuck's sake. I mean, it's not like, um, I wasn't involved in some, you know, some red letter crisis where, you know, I, I did something horrible. Um, you know, there are people who are known for far worse things. Yeah. yeah I'll, you're take, not I'll take it. You're not going to show up on there's that HBO documentary thing that Monica Lewinsky did oh 15 God. minutes of shame. Like you're not right. going to be on, you're not that, you're not that bad, but I, I mean, mean they would is, be, I mean, they'd be really hard for airtime if I was going to show up on something like that. <laughs> Jumping back over to our conversation with Josh and Taylor. Let's see what we think about uh, when it's okay to break the rules and why. All right. So this, I'm going to, I'm going to, pivot us a little bit and this is kind of the thing so from my perspective um i did book reviews for 10 years and um not necessarily much of a writer myself so it's more of 
I'm taking in these words and this is how they have an impact on me has been kind of my interaction with, with writing in general. And so um, the thing that I kind of arrived at as a book reviewer was I was really focused on the quality of this is based on what was the author's intention and then were they effective in making that happen? And so that's kind of how I tried to do my reviews because it's like, I need to understand what you wanted to do and then I want to see how effective was it on me. Um, And so going back, and this was brought up earlier, there's oftentimes that, you know, someone is writing something and they're just going to die on that hill of this comma needs to be here um, or whatever it happens to be. So at some point, there is a decision that's made to do things a specific way, especially I'm assuming in fiction, but probably also in, you know, nonfiction, nonfiction, like opinion pieces, whatever it is, um, to do something a specific way, whether or not it adheres to like these specific grammar rules. So that is my long winded way of introducing the concept of like, um, how important is it for the thing that's written to have the impact it's intended to be over like it properly following grammar and usage rules and stuff like that. I think there's a middle ground, but I, I definitely, I veer towards you can break rules if you know why you're doing it. You know, if you know why you're doing it and you've thought about it and you have a good sense that your readers, your intended audience will also be on board for that. um, Then yeah, it's fine. There's, not all rules actually make a lot of sense for every context anyway. So to, I don't know. I think that, yeah, they're totally breakable. They're totally like you can bend them. I mean, great writers are great good at this stuff all the time. You know, they, we have these things where we go into these like craft classes to say, Oh, you can write a sentence with just one word. You can put a period at the end. Well, that's, that's grammatically wrong. Right. If I just put, you know, boom, and a period, like that's not, you know, it's not a grammatical sentence, but we know what it means. And the writer is making a point by breaking the rule. They're making, um, they're doing it on purpose. They have a reason for it. And that's totally fine. All those grammatical rules, all the, all the punctuation, especially punctuation is there to help us understand the the context, right? So if we're using it in a way that is understandable. Like if I just put, if I decide I'm going to end all my sentences with question marks, that's not going to do anything, right? <laughs> I it's hate just that gonna... book. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. Yeah, it's it's annoying. You're just annoying your reader. They're totally out of the element because they can't figure out what you're doing. They're like, oh, okay, this person is really avant garde. Whatever. Next, you know, like. Uh, that's, it's fine, but it's not, you're not helping anybody. You're not getting there. You don't want to bring your reader out of the story or out of your narrative because you've done something that's kind of way off. But if you've done something that's way off and you have a really like functional reason in the context of what you're writing, go for it. That's great. That's what it's there for. That's why I think bringing a grammatical conversation to a mostly creative writing platform like Lit Reactor is appropriate because I'm when I go into classes, I talk about how this is used in their actual writing. Cause a lot of them are writing prose for 
you know, they're writing fiction and stuff like that. They're not writing a lot of technical stuff. They might be, um, but that's what they're doing. They've got a book or a story and they want help kind of help me editing themselves and, and stuff like that. And that's what that's for. In fact, one of my more popular articles is how to punctuate dialogue. Yeah. That like, one. It's mm-hmm. like, for some reason, that one was super popular. <laughs> I still get email questions on that one all the time. And I incorporated it into class because it was so like, people just kept coming back to that. And it's, it's funny because I think I put like four or five different ways to do it because there is so many ways stylistically that you can put dialogue into prose that are effective as long as you do it consistently and kind of you set up a certain way of doing it and then you follow that throughout totally fine. So I, I think all that stuff is there. It's a tool for you to use. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, as far as breaking rules, I feel like anything in the pursuit of, you know, your art or anything, you know, that's creative, like anything goes as long as you're, you're consistent with it, you know, to me, that's, that's different than you're you're just using bad grammar because you have bad grammar and it makes what you're right. writing yeah. right. unintelligible. Yeah. And people yeah. that are newer writers don't necessarily know that difference. So that's, I think, where a lot of the personal stuff comes in. It's like, they think, oh, well, I'm just deciding to. It's my creativity. Um, and it's like, yeah, but you didn't. But I, you don't know why that works or doesn't work because you don't know what a colon is used for or whatever. Like, so you don't know how to misuse it appropriately, right? If you don't know what the hammer is, then you don't know how to turn the hammer around. Do you know what I mean? Right, exactly. Um, And it's funny that um, this was easy to talk about with prose, um, but actually, so my girlfriend is a copywriter and every now and then I hear, you know, little anecdotes about her her work life and stuff like that. And she recently was telling me about um, something that someone on a team was had written um, and this person is just a marvelous technical writer and they know all the stuff and they know how to do it right. And they write the most boring stuff because they write it the way that it should be written, but it's just got no soul or no like yeah. kind of animation to it. So like you can do everything perfectly and completely lose something or someone who, who's reading it. So even I think on a technical level, um, you still got to try and keep people interested, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean breaking rules, but it means making, making what you're doing, like giving it flavor or whatever. So I just thought even on a technical level, you can still suffer from um, maybe being too rigid about shit. Taylor, do you think such a a strict adherence to, to rules like that is kind of a, a herald of the old guard that like the, the younger generation, up and coming that's kind of been raised on social media and Twitter. They're less affected uh, by bad grammar because they're used to people speaking that way and reading social media that way. People using, you know, emoticons and like the letter U instead of the word U and stuff like that. Yeah, I'd say that's probably true. I think maybe when you think about like, you know, if you want to call it the old guard, like the, you know, early 20th century writers or teachers, you know, what they learned versus what like kids now are learning or um, I do think it it is different, but I think that they just maybe don't remember that there was, there was revolution in language then too. (laughs) It's like, it just, this is ours now. They had theirs. 
there was one before that. There was one before that. Like um, we're just in the midst of this one right now. And we're, we do have all these new ways to communicate with our, you know, devices. Like, I mean, like I use like the, the little like GIF library all the time. Right. It's like, that's like a, that, that in of, it, of itself right. is like a little <laughs> communication piece. And it's part of a shared cultural understanding that even that's even in there. Right. That there's this little, you know, GIF of some television character with some words on it. And, and if I put that out there, the person that put it in the phone knew that someone would know how to use it. And then I pick it out, send it to somebody and they know what I mean. And I haven't written anything, right. It's just, you know, we're communicating on, on all these different levels, but I think that that has existed before. It just was some other way. Um, I think when we hear a lot of the, you know, these are the rules and, and you need to do it that way. It's, it does come from a, this really specific point of view. And it, I know everybody always asks me about uh, strunk and white. Um, so that there's like this, right. uh, you guys, do you guys know what strunk and white is? John Gingrich, <laughs> when I talked to him, he referenced that as one of the, the sources he pulled for, for that big article that he wrote. So yeah, that came up when we talked to him. So when I, um, entered college, the very first thing they did was give me this strunk and white book, right? It literally like says like from Hamilton college to Taylor, you know, welcome. <laughs> Cause the college had this whole thing about being, um, you know, that they were every, everybody were there was good writers and they had really strong writing skills and all this stuff. And they handed us this little style guide and I didn't look at that thing once, not once in four years, <laughs> put it on the shelf, moved on with life, never looked at it managed to get through. Okay. You know, just kind of, you know, just writing what I think I knew in in my head. Um, when I did finally look at it in grad school, some of the advice in there is just straight up outdated. Like it's like, yeah, okay. Um, and EB white, the, the Charlotte's web guy, mm. he's the one that put together the book and he put it together based oh, that's on the same white. Yes. And that's who white is. And he put it together on um, based on a one-page style guide that his professor, Strunk, had given him when he was at Harvard like in the oh, 1890s wow. or something like that. So he takes 1890s grammar advice, updates it for, I think, the 30s or 40s. I can't remember exactly when Strunk and White came out. Um, and then out it goes, right? And we're all supposed to sort of follow what's basically 100-year-old grammar advice. Um, yeah. And I don't think that book's been updated since like the eighties or something like the last edition that came out. No, because everybody kind of like gave it to EB white and then just like left it there. And they're like, this is EB white's thing. Um, a lot of it is good advice, but it is advice. It's not rules. It's literally just a little book of advice, just like the one pager that his professor gave him was advice for his class at that time in that place. Right. So it was very, can you imagine like someone gives you something for you to use or a group of you to use? And then 30, 40 years later, you take that and you like disseminate it to the masses. Right. And then hundred years after that, everyone's still following that thing that you wrote for a very specific audience in a very specific time. So that's yeah. what Strunk and White is. It's called the Bible. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was a lot more years in between. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hundred percent agree. But um, that so I always I actually kind of just 
this drunk and white now because it's it's old. There's much better advice out there. There's good modern advice out there. Um, there's um, there's a lot more than just that, and it's good, but it's it's incomplete and it's just kind of like a yeah okay if you've like just if you really need some a few things to sort of help you figure out how not to totally suck like <laughs> go ahead but um i don't i don't go back to Strunk and white that much anymore because mm. there's other things so take that john gingrich <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so i guess that kind of leads into the question of um we established that you know rules are okay to be broken uh it's best to know the tool before you decide you're using it a different way was, was, was something that, that came up. So if someone wants to just make sure that they're well-versed in grammar and usage and everything so that they're, they're not just bumbling around doing things wrong, um, like in, like in inarticulately, but you know, they're using knowledge in order to kind of craft their style. Um, what, what, what would you say are better ways to, um, educate yourself i mean obviously there's different style guides there's there's classes there's just i'm assuming reading a ton um but what what would you say makes a good kind of effort to to be more familiar to be like to make a good effort to know grammar before you decide to abuse it um i think that i mean not to uh pitch my own class, but that is really why I put that together because there was nothing out there that I saw that was like an end to end, um, picture of sort of all the major points of, of grammar, especially the one one that I teach. That's, uh, it, I really thought there's nothing out there like that because, um, I never saw it. I looked for it. Um, but there was a lot of, if you don't want to like pick up the Chicago Mano style, which is, you know, it's a doorstop. It's huge. You're not going to read that end to end. Um, I did it once and found that I was really stupid and that's how I came to this grammar <laughs> thing in the first place. Um, uh, I took a undergrad level journalism class uh, when I was a grad student at Penn State and thought I was going to get an easy A, got my ass handed to me. <laughs> I did, it was a bunch of copy editor, editors and I was like, I am an idiot. I do not know this stuff at all. So that's where I kind of decided that I needed to teach myself. Um, and get better at it. But coming to schools, I think a lot of places where I find good sort of end-to-end advice is like um, the the writing center for our college. So if you pick like a mid-sized university, usually all their stuff is online, like publicly. There's a lot of good, really practical advice in there. Um, if you're going to like a bookstore or something like that, or you want to get on Amazon and order something, a lot of the books that they hand out to college students is is good because it's kind of a an overview with everything. Um, I know uh, Mignon Fogarty, who does the Grammar Girl stuff, she has a book that has actually started been using in colleges that is a, a good sort of, you know, whole picture, um, you know, art, like book that you can go there. It's a good sort of reference and you could read it and if you wanted to. Uh, I think that that's good. I think also too, just like not being afraid to sort of look for the conversations about it because if you look, there's, you know, you'll see people who are, you know, professional editors, professional linguists, professional like writers, and they will go on. And if you look, you'll look on Twitter, there'll be like an argument about how to use some comma or apostrophe or whether or not to capitalize something because 
it is really like based on context and all this stuff. And you'll see, oh, there isn't like a really hard and fast rule. So there's, there's some wiggle room and you'll start to understand like, what is that nuance? If you follow an argument between the two, like I would use it like this because it means this, or I see it like that because when I see it used that way, it makes more sense because blah, blah, blah. So kind of looking for the the conversations too, if you just want to like, what, what is some of the, what's that gray area, right? That, that exists out there. But if you want something that's like, I just need to understand better. Like, you know, do, what do I think is, is a verb what I think it is, is a, you know, they have all these grammatical terms. I don't feel like I know what they are. Um, I see them used, but like, when I, if you had to, you know, put a gun to my head, I wouldn't know what it is. <laughs> like, that's good. I think like that college sites and, and sort of stuff that's geared towards, um, you know, new writers or that kind of like those writing guides that they have. Um, Cause I go back to those too, just for really like straightforward stuff. Right on. And your class. <laughs> like that's literally the reason I, I put it together. I was like, I wish there was something else out there. And I looked around and I was like, there really isn't. Not that I've seen. Okay. What would a grammar episode be without some nitpicks? So first you're going to hear from John Gingrich, some of his updated nitpicks that didn't make it into his original article. Then we're just going to transition right back over to Josh and Taylor to hear their side of it. John, before we wrap this up, is there any new additions to your your list of of grammar or usage things that uh, uh, that didn't make the list originally? Sure. I mean, I figure if I haven't pissed people off this bad in ten years, I might as well come back and you know throw some more wood on the fire. Um, there were a couple ones that I didn't add to the list that I I kind of always wanted to, and um, yeah, I'll just throw some of them out there to you right now. Um, I have to say, number one would probably be the phrase centered around um it that just doesn't mean anything um how can <laughs> you know how can something be both centered and around something it doesn't make any sense so um that's just not a phrase that <laughs> i would advise using because it doesn't really mean anything um another one um the, this is i see this everywhere um the difference between criterion and criteria um so criterion with the n that's singular one criterion, you know, uh, criteria is plural. So that'd be a number of criterions. Here's one I, I got. I see this, the magazine I edit, I see this almost every month. Um, we talk a lot about pronouns these days. Um, companies, they're an it, not a they. So, you know, you don't oh, say, right you don't say something like Facebook is known for their deceptive practices. You say Facebook is known for its mm. deceptive practices. So companies are not a they unless it's companies, plural. Um, on the other hand, bands, bands are a they. It's funny how that works, but bands are a they, companies are an it. So I just, <laughs> I see this constantly with the companies. Companies are always they in these articles that I'm getting. Um, while we're on the topic of pronouns, um, reflexive pronouns. So you got like myself, yourself, himself, herself, itself, whatever. Um, what reflexive pronouns do, they, they turn the action in a sentence back on the subject. So I fed myself, right? But so what you shouldn't do is you shouldn't use reflexive pronouns as a substitute for me or him or her. Like 
saying something like he fed my brother and myself. It should be, you know, me, not myself in that case. Um, oh, gotcha. Okay. So here's another one that I see all the time. Uh, when, when there's a colon and what follows the colon is an independent clause, that sentence starts with a capital letter. You should start with a capital letter. Um, when you have a colon and it's followed by a dependent clause, use a lowercase letter. God, while we're on the subject, um, this is one, again, I see this every month. It's constant, constantly seeing this one. Um, so if you have an independent clause and then what follows that is a conjunction and another independent clause, so we call that a compound sentence, you use a comma before the conjunction. So I went to the store, comma, but I forgot my wallet. So, you know, I went to the store as an independent clause. I forgot my commas, another independent clause. There's a but in the middle. Put a comma before the but. So two independent clauses with a conjunction in the middle. Put a comma before the conjunction. I went to the store, comma, but I bought my wallet. But I forgot my wallet. But when you have a complex sentence, so that's a, you know, that's an independent clause, and then that's followed by a dependent clause, there's no comma. So I went to the store and bought bread. You know, bought bread is a dependent clause. It's not a sentence. So I went to the store. You don't put a comma before and. So just little little things like that. Um, those are those are my bugbears. Those are the things that that rile me up the most. Um, and then you know I've I've got just other little nitpicky things that you know don't really mean a whole hell of a lot to most people. Um, everyone's got their own nitpicky you know bugbears. Um, the word over. People use, they misuse the word over or they oh, just, it suffers yeah. from overuse. Um, you should probably use more than most of the time. So right. instead of saying over 300 million Americans, it's usually best to say more than 300 million Americans. I mean, over what, you know, what are they over? They're not over anything. So it's usually more than, um, that's just about it. Um, and you know, this one isn't a grammar or a usage rule, but it's just a, a word that annoys the shit out of me. Um, I keep seeing the word. <laughs> curate everywhere and it just drives me absolutely nuts um it, i it just it the word curate it, there's nothing wrong with it it just suffers from overuse so this is not a grammatical thing this is not a usage thing this is just you know old man staring you know and, and yelling at cloud kind of thing um <laughs> the word the, the word curate just suffers from overuse it's a cliche and you know like all cliches it it, it probably sounded great the first time someone said it but it's just been worn down flat. It suffers from overuse. So there's no more life left to the phrase. Um, I, you know, the only people who should be using the word curate are like these, these bearded guys who run like an artisanal mayonnaise shop. Like they, they, they can, <laughs> they can have the word curate and do whatever they want with it, but it just suffers from overuse. And I just don't think you should use the word curate ever for anything anymore. Um, I saw a sign in uh, on the street the other day that was, that was promoting curated pitas i mean i i just don't need you know that pita bread to be fucking curated it's just not necessary um yeah it's just one of those things um you can there are there's a there are a number of words you could use to much better effect than curate and um okay i'm 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 done ranting cashed out on that one um well uh one one more time with the word um nonplussed um i i I saw this in a Vox article yesterday. Um, oh. I, I was I was reading an article on Vox, which is a it's a good site. I mean, they're great writers there, um, good editors. I, I saw an article on Vox uh, yesterday where they misused the word nonplussed. 
to mean that someone wasn't excited or jazzed about something, which is just really strange to me. But again, just like nauseous, just like moot, um, a word will suffer from misuse enough times until we end up adopting the new thing. So, you know, in, in 10 years or maybe even now, I mean, for all I know, maybe you'll, you'll find in a dictionary nonplussed, it will say, you know, to be unexcited about something when in actuality, that's not what the word means. That's crazy. The one that I've, uh, so, um, the, my girlfriend I've been dating for about a little over a year now is a, is a profession. She's a copywriter. Um, and so now I find myself kind of in the crosshairs more often where, oh, yeah. um, I'll say the, I'll use, I'll do usage stuff often. And, um, one of the ones that I have really come around on is the, um, using fewer instead of less or, yeah. or whatever the, yeah, the fewer one, yeah. I was always not using fewer when I needed to. And, um, yeah. that one came around, but man, now I feel like the heat is heat is on for me to to use words the way that I'm supposed to. Well, you know, the, the checkout lines at grocery stores really haven't made things easy yeah. for anybody because they are always saying ten items or less, and they're wrong. Right? Um, <laughs> yeah. So discreetly countable. That's what it should be there for. <laughs> well, now that you've stoked all the fires again, I just want to um, <laughs> give you an opportunity to remind people about your upcoming book, so that when they read it, they can just dig through word for word and make sure they sure. just needle you on anything. Oh God, the grammar is going to be awful. The book is called the appetite factory. It comes out August 22nd, uh, 2022, uh, Turner publishing company. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, that's all I'm going to plug. That's my spiel. That's I'm not much of a salesman, but, uh, yeah, so that's coming out. Um, that's it. Awesome. Well, John, thanks so much for sharing your, your experience and your, and your thoughts on some of the new stuff that has come up. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for talking to me tonight. So I know this goes against pretty much, um, what we've said, which is, you know, there's a lot of this stuff is, you know, um, advice and up for interpretation and blah, blah, blah. But, um, I'm going to see if I can get out of either of you, um, any specific nitpicks of grammar and stuff that just drive you nuts, uh, Taylor from a, perspective of you see stuff all the time or Josh from the perspective of you are the managing editor of a website you're also an author um so you've you've got a lot of experience with that too either one of you want to take a crack at something um i have one that i don't know why it just drives you so crazy it's really not even that big a deal um but mostly just like putting apostrophes on things just cause. So I'm sure you, there's always jokes <laughs> on the internet, right. Of how someone they've stuck an apostrophe somewhere that it shouldn't be there. Um, but the one that really gets me is when they put an apostrophe um, on like a, uh, like an acronym or an initialisms like CEO. So where I work, it's, it's rampant. I just have to like, just breathe through it when I see them <laughs> because you know they'll be like, you know, project manager PM apostrophe S and I'm like, PMs, what's the PMs? What? <laughs> no, no, they mean <laughs> multiple PMs. Um, that one, I don't know why it just bugs me so much. And honestly, it's an, it's an honest mistake because no one, I never learned that like in school. It's not something that they're like, okay, grammar rule number 25. Like do, if you're writing a, an acronym, make sure you just put an S lowercase S that's how you make a plural in almost all cases. And in this case too, you don't put an apostrophe. So I don't know where the apostrophe came from. It's People there. People do that a lot with uh, years too, with decades when they write yeah. like the eighties. Yes. People always yep. put yeah. the apostrophe in. And I, it always. was only, you know, 
not that long ago I learned that was wrong. And it always makes me feel <laughs> good when I see it. And I'm like, nope. It's so rampant. Like, you kind of, even I was like, is it wrong? Am I misunderstanding something? Well, one day it's going to become right, even though it's yeah. wrong. Because if everyone does it, then it becomes right. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to do that, but there you have it. Um, but yeah, that's one that really <laughs> drives me a little crazy. And I take them out when I see them. <laughs> As an editor, like when I'm editing stuff and I see honest mistakes or just, you know, um, mistypes and whatnot, like no, none of that really bothers me. That's just, that is what it is. Um, there are stylistic things I see people do. Um, and I've even toyed with writing a lit reactor style guide, uh, but I don't want to put the effort in because there are you know, a handful of things I see certain writers. I don't want to name anybody and shame anybody, and I don't want to give specific <laughs> examples because then they might know. But there are certain things I see done stylistically that are not necessarily incorrect, but that just really irk me and I can't stand and I change them every single time. And, and the writers still do them. And, but like, I haven't, you know, I, I've never said anything. Like it's never irked me enough to be like, Hey, stop doing this. You know? So it's kind of a passive aggressive. I'm just going to change this every time I see it. <laughs> that's uh, I think that's, that's the right move. It's like um, yeah. this weird stalemate. You're just always going to be like locked in this battle. Yeah. But chances are they, they don't even know. They never notice. <laughs> I mean, unless you're a maniac like me and go back and reread your article yet again, once it's published, even though it's pretty much the same, you know, you're not going to see. Oh, I always reread them and I always find stuff. And I love that edit button because I have, yeah. I have edited my own stuff after it's been published practically every time <laughs> yeah that's true and then whenever i write for someone else where i don't have that editorial access and i see errors after something's been published it's always such a pain and like the turnaround seems so long to get it corrected well um it, the thing that i've learned from talking to you two and also talking to john gingrich separately is that um there is no end to the conversation about grammar but um I personally uh, feel very satisfied that, you know, the things that we talked about kind of align with my general feelings about, you know, the intention of words and everything. So not that I'm patting myself on the back that I'm right, but um, um, I feel good about the conversation. And I really appreciate um, both of you uh, giving your your wisdom to it. So thanks both of you, Taylor and, and Josh, for joining. Thank you. Thanks. All right, that is going to do it for our grammar episode. Thanks again to John Gingrich for coming on and talking about his experience with his grammar article. Thanks to Taylor Houston for sharing her wisdom from her longtime experience as a grammar columnist and teacher. And as always, thanks to Josh Shaplinski for joining us as the managing editor of Lit Reactor. Okay, and that was a fun little episode where we talked about grammar for unprintable. That means that there's just one episode left for me to, to publish, and then I'll have everything up. And that is the 10-year retrospective episode of the podcast that I did with Rob Hart and Josh Chaplinski, where they talk about the first 10 years of 
the website, um, some of the most popular articles, uh, the origin of the website, the tie-ins with Chuck Palahniuk's website, a bunch of stuff. Good conversation, and it's nice uh, little slice of history for anybody out there who um, maybe doesn't isn't aware of Lit Reactor, or you know, a, a nice reminder for the people who have found it very valuable over the years. The next episode that you're going to get is probably going to be that 10-year retrospective, and then following that soon after is going to be the first uh, 2024 horror preview episode that I recorded with Becky Spratford and Emily Hughes. That will be at the very beginning of January. Later in January is a nice little surprise. <laughs>